0: You're listening to Highlights from the Creative Process Interview with Paul Levinson. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michowski Foundation. People have often asked me, they, let's say, knew about my science fiction, and they would say, well, how is it that you've even come to write books that are much more serious. How is it, as you've just suggested, that I'm a professor at Fordham University, I teach courses such as freedom of expression, ethics of technology, and so on. Those are very serious, weighty courses. And the answer is, for me, there has never been that much difference between my science fiction on the one hand, my serious writing on the other hand, and my music, on yet a third hand. And as a matter of fact, critics of my nonfiction have often said, your ideas about technology, and I tend to be a great optimist about technology, the very fact that we're doing this right now through Zoom, this is something which I think is wonderful. Zoom enables people, you're in Paris, I'm in New York, and we can just easily talk to each other without getting on a plane. So I've always been a great champion of technology and my critics have said Levinson's work reads like science fiction and then my critics of science fiction because in my science fiction like in my novel the plot to save Socrates it's a time travel story but there's a lot of philosophy in that story Socrates ideas Plato's ideas they play major roles in that novel so uh, my science fiction is uh more Serious than science fiction might usually be and my nonfiction including my teaching is more optimistic uh, and more Energetically optimistic than you usually might find in an academic and my music fits right in there in both worlds You know research is very important. It's an interesting thing. You know it's science fiction. So part of it is not true Right, I mean, part of it is you're making up a story. But in order for your readers to have confidence in your narrative, you have to make sure you are as accurate as possible about the facts that surround the fiction that you are creating. I define myself as a writer. And if you think about that, that encompasses being a songwriter. It encompasses being a writer of science fiction. And it encompasses being a writer of nonfiction. About, I've written books like, uh, well, my doctoral dissertation, Human Replay, A Theory of the Evolution of Media, which argues that as media evolve, they don't get more artificial, they get more natural. Once upon a time, all we had is black and white photography, now we have color part of the natural world. Once upon a time, we had silent movies. Now we have movies that have sight and sound. Obviously we hear as well as see. Uh, we even have holography now. So, which is the third dimension. Uh, it, so uh, th- that was my thesis back then in 1976. And I've written books about Marshall McLuhan and uh, more recently books about fake news, which have a, a lot of p- political content. And uh, all of those, to me, are part of the same process uh, as the process of being a writer. And so it, it, it really is the case that I have an idea, and the idea is first, and then I have to decide, am I going to write a science fiction story about this, or am I going to write a more serious scholarly article, or am I even maybe going to write a song about that? And I'm just fortunate that I'm able to do those things. So by writer or author or creator, maybe that's even a better word, that that word creator pertains to all of those processes. And that's honestly how uh, how I think of myself. There was an organization called the Western Behavioral Sciences Institute, WBSI. And one day I was at a conference in Philadelphia and a guy came up to me and said, hey, I heard your... You know, talk uh, an hour or so ago how would you like to teach a course for our Western Behavioral Sciences Institute and I said sure uh, and he said we're in La Jolla California I said I don't know if I can get out to La Jolla for, you know, to teach a whole course he said no you just have to come out to La Jolla to meet the students and then you're going to teach the course totally through computers so this was like in the early 1980s so I went out there taught a course or two and I realized this is a great way of learning. And so um, I came up with the idea for Connected Education, Connected. And I was Tina and I were already married. We created this company. And we started offering courses. And, of course, things were very different back then. They were offered totally online. There were no videos. You know, there might have been very primitive photographs and no real audio to speak of. This was before even MP3s. Uh, and, but the, the program really went very well. At its height, we had students from more, more than uh, 20 countries across the world, more than 45 states around the U.S. I'm still in touch with many of those students. We've almost become friends. And so I've been in online education, though, not actively doing it since the 1980s. So when this whole COVID pandemic broke, and uh, you know, I'll never forget uh, the day in March, I'm right in the middle of teaching a class in person and Fordham announces we're shutting down. And within two days, you have to have your course online. And a lot of faculty are going crazy. What do you mean? How can I teach online? Uh, and I, I sent out a note to my colleagues. And I tried to give them some basics because even though we now have zoom for live communication and you can do videos and, you know, you have email and you have all these other possible ways of teaching online. The the basics of online education have remained the same. And that's, you have to stay in touch with the students. Don't disappear on them. Students have to feel there's someone listening to them, responding to them. And, um, there are enormous advantages even outside of the covid pandemic that online education brings for example it doesn't matter where the students are so again you're in paris right now i'm a little north of new york we could be right across the street from each other the online connection does away with distance and if you add in an asynchronous element meaning okay i'm teaching an online course some of it is going to be live through zoom but I'm going to record that, that Zoom lecture. And if you're in Paris, which is not that far away from New York, but let's say you're in Beijing you know, or Shanghai, and you know you want to take this course, and you just can't get on there live, it's like four o'clock in the morning for you. No problem, because you can see the lecture and listen to it asynchronously, and people can't communicate that way. So, I think online education is a profoundly liberating mode of education. There is something exciting about being in a class in person, but there's also something exciting about teaching people all around the world at the same time. And uh, so I found that to be an, an extremely valuable wellspring of orientation in terms of adjusting to what the pandemic has brought to higher education. Shortly after all the universities closed down, uh, a professor not at Fordham University, who I won't name, but he's like part of an online group. He literally said to this group, I would rather cut my arm off than teach online. And I didn't even answer him. I mean, because this guy is like so far gone. I don't know what he was thinking, what his problem was. But that way of thinking, it's not helpful, and I think it misses the essential point that, again, just like you and I are now having this conversation, professors can have conversations with groups of students and they can be extremely effective online. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.